0: Well, good morning, Senators. How are you doing today? Oh, come on. How are you doing today? Oh, all right, there you go. Well, my name is Jed. It is an absolute privilege and honor to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And as Becky said earlier, if you are joining us on our new platform, Church Online, we are so glad that you are here. And unlike the last several months where I'm going to be intently staring at that screen across this odd chasm of space, my friends, if you're out there, unfortunately, I'm going to disregard you a little bit with my eye contact because this Sunday we have some live people in the house so, so glad that you all are here. We're kicking off a new series on the Sermon on the Mountain every week for the next several months. We are going to begin by having a reader share our text for the day, and this morning I have my friend and also one of our elders, Mark Horton. Mark, take it away. All right. So good to be here. Join me as we listen to God's Word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. And acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house." And it fell, and great was its fall. Now, then, Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Thank you, Mark. Well, that passage of scripture that Mark just read to you is at the conclusion. Of something. And you'll note at the very beginning it said that Jesus spoke these things. Anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. And at the very end when Jesus finished speaking, speaking these things. Those were in direct reference to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Two chapters in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Arguably some of the most important chapters in the entire Bible that you and I can hold. And we're going to be studying that over the next several weeks. The context for that, however, is in a book that we know as the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, if you were here for our one big service and you were outside, you saw that Britt's iPad failed him, yes? Do you remember that if you are here? And thankfully, Britt ever prepared the fireman that he is, or was, I should say, the pastor he is now, so, so prepared, he had his notes with him. And so uh, I've got my notes today as well uh, for my sermon, 44 pages, single spaced. It's going to be a long one. Buckle up. I'm just kidding. These are not my notes for today. These are pages out of an exegetical course I took in undergrad on the Gospel of Matthew. And so I dug these up and printed them out as I was studying in preparation for this message. And I just thought I'd read a couple of the bullet points that I have here to give us some context for where the Sermon on the Mount is rooted in. Now, One of the first bullet points I have here, bullet point number four, Matthew is interested in lifelong discipleship. And then parenthetically, I wrote emphasis on the teaching. Matthew is the gospel placed first in our canon Has numerous similarities to Psalms, right? And so there's this whole bit where there's the structure of Psalms here. There are five books and partitions of Psalms. We studied that last summer. And so my professor wanted to explain that the five teaching discourses in Matthew can parallel that as well. The Jewish themes in Matthew make it a good transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, There are fulfillment of citation formulas, as they're called. There are 14 in Matthew, and these say these things happen to fulfill what was spoken by. Matthew is very big on tying Jesus to fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. The author comes out of a very strong Jewish tradition. He is evidently writing to a Jewish audience who see Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish Scripture. I can remember being, I was probably a sophomore in college, typing furiously, as my professor, Dr. Matson gave us gold upon gold for this gospel. So I thought, there's got to be so much here that I can use for my sermon. It's probably written already for me. So I skipped ahead, right, found uh, this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount, the first major teaching discourse. The first point says Augustine was the first person to call it the Sermon on the Mount, Thomas Aquinas believed that it was a two-level ethic. Luther's view, the sermon, and its rigor showed the impossibility of God's demand. And then, at the, at the very end of this little paragraph, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, in parentheses, I put the sermon on the mount and acts on them, will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The contrast is in 726, the foolish man built his house on sand. I thought, Great start. Got a little bit there, okay? Straightforward. And I skipped to the end, Matthew chapter 7, where we started at 8, and there was like nothing there. There was one little reference to a passage in Ezekiel, and that was it. So I thought, well, that's not going to be helpful for us, but I've got another packet of papers here, and uh, ooh, it comes straight out of my Bible, <laughs> and it's not coincidental I don't think I've had this Bible since I was in college. And there's a reason why this part has fallen apart. Because for the last 12 or 13 years, every year for a certain chunk of time, I'm here with these words. And so it's fallen off. This is page 1674 in my Bible. And there's chapter 5 right there. And then over the next seven pages... I've got the Sermon on the Mount. See, here's what's plain about these words and these things that Jesus is talking about them. They are in reference to the Sermon on the Mount. We ought to hear Jesus' words, these two chapters. There are a lot of other things that he says, but we ought to hear these words. He wants these particular words to be paid attention to, and he wants us to act on them. Again... Mark read from chapter 7 Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. When I was a kid, I grew up in a small church in San Diego, First Christian Church of National City, and I can remember. Being in our little elementary school building that was across the street from the sanctuary and every sunday at nine o'clock we would have something called sunday school does anyone remember going to sunday school growing up yep back in the olden days and sunday school was a place where we would hear stories and sometimes we would sing songs and one of them was about this particular passage of scripture you remember that the wise man built his house upon the rock yeah so I YouTubed out this past week to, to re-familiarize it for myself. And so we have that. If you just stand, we're going to sing this together. Go ahead and stand up. I, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, okay, so he got us with this and then a song. What is going on today? Worst sermon ever. Well, That's not the sermon and we're not singing the song, so relax. The thing is... If what's plain to us is that Jesus is saying, do these words act on them? Well, where else? Where else do we go? What else is there for us? I mean, that's really, really important. Yes. You'll find out over the next several weeks that we'll continue to talk about how the Sermon on the Mount is paralleled over and over. That it was inspirational to the rest of the New Testament writings. That it was the quintessential teaching of Jesus. It was his heart for how we express what it means to live in the kingdom of God under the rule and reign. Ultimately, it would be his kingdom. And in James, a letter that we have later on, his brother, we see a very clear instance where Jesus' words are paralleled. In chapter one, it says, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone are hearers of the word and not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in the mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be what? Blessed in their doing. And so James has these words that very much sound like Jesus' conclusion. And he says they'll be blessed in their doing. And Jesus, in the Sermon on Mount Robert will begin next week, at the actual beginning, he's going to begin with the Beatitudes. He speaks and pronounces blessing, statements of reality about the unexpected, those who actually are blessed. So that's what's plain and straightforward. But here is what's paralleled in this text. And I told you, I I didn't have anything else helpful in this massive bit of notes. I'm so, so bummed. But the one thing that was cited was Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 8 through 16. I remember my professor briefly sharing about a scene in Ezekiel that mimicked and showed what Jesus is then teaching about. So in Ezekiel chapter 13, it writes this. Ezekiel, the exiled priest, prophet writes about the false prophets. Because they have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear whitewash on it. Say to those who smear whitewash on it that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain. Great hailstones will fall and a stormy wind will break out. When the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the whitewash you smeared on it? Perhaps you've heard Jesus speaking against the Pharisees and saying they're like whitewashed tombs. Right? There's this beautiful appearance on the outside, but there's all this filth on the inside. And the the idea of whitewash is that there would be this material that was chosen to erect walls that wasn't the strongest of materials. It would need to be tended to yearly. It wasn't great construction material, but in order to have it have the appearance of being good, they would smear this plaster on it, this whitewash on it, so that at face value it would look really, really sound. And in the context of Ezekiel, as he is speaking out against the northern kingdom of Israel about their idolatry, what he's setting up is this. All of the nation, all the people are looking at each other, feeling like, you know, it seems as though, like, this isn't the way that life should be. We probably shouldn't be bowing down to these idols. We probably should be turning to God, but no, it's okay. It's not too bad. Like, everything's okay, right? And so they look at each other and go, yeah, everything's Okay. And so they were building up these walls around them that said like, we're protected from God's judgment. We are protected. Everything is going to be fine. And then to make matters worse, the false prophets, the religious leaders of the time, would look at them and say, yes, you're right, peace. Everything is whole. Everything is good. They did not want to speak the hard and harsh words. I don't know about you, but the last several months have been some of the wildest of months in my life. Has anyone experienced that at all? Pretty wild. I remember early on, we used the word unprecedented all the time, and yet that first series, the new normal, it's our turn, that tagline was emphasizing the fact that even though it feels so new, right, there's nothing new under the sun, The world has been through trial after trial and hard thing after hard thing. And in every juncture of human history, sovereign God has been attempting to get our attention, to turn our hearts toward him. And one of the things that we've tried to do as people, understandably and instinctively, we've kept saying, like, oh, it'll be fine, like, everything's okay. And then you hear this, I just want to get back to what's normal, right? Right? I just want the way that it was. And quite, I don't like this version, right? I don't like this version. I, it's hard to look out and see that this, it's just not the same clearly. But I don't think the point for us is to say, don't worry, like everything is good. Let's just write it out until we go back to normal. Because when we're sitting across from a couple who's here for divorce counseling, for instance, and they're telling me their story, in my head I'm thinking like, I'm super young. I've only been married for almost 10 years, but they're sharing. And and the thing that I hear often is we just want it to go back to what it was. We just want it to be the way that it was. And then we have to gently remind these couples, like I have to remind myself that the problem with that is that place that you were, where you were, it got you to where you are. And so the goal isn't to go back to what was. The goal is to recognize where we are and that where we've been has taken us to this place and there's an opportunity for us to see there's a better path forward, yes? There's something different for us. Look at Jesus' conclusion again to this story. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. You see how Jesus is using a story and a par- parable to say hard things? You know who did that a lot too? Ezekiel. Lots of parables, lots of stories. I mean, he was more like an actor. He would do these wild things to communicate really hard news, and Jesus is concluding with a story. But you see, I, I told you what was plain, right? Hear Jesus' words and do them. We've given you the scriptural precedent for this. What parallels this? But there's actually something here that would have been even more plain because it was a parable. It was a story for every single person who is listening to Jesus when he is on that hillside sharing this story that we're going to miss. So I'm going to show you a little picture here. That's pretty beautiful, right? Yes? That is the Sea of Galilee. That's just one section of it. This thing stretches 14 miles long. And this past spring, a group of us, was Kathy Pelletier and Pam DeBorak, a small group of us, we were actually going to go to Israel. It's going to be my first time. I was so, so excited. Math, uh, Mal has shared stories. Matthew and Lisa, they've shared stories. I've talked to different people as they've talked about their travels here. And I wanted so badly to get to these waters and to experience this. But then the pandemic and we're not there. And so it was rescheduled for October and here we are. We're still not there. And so at some point in the future, we're gonna get to be there, but I'd love to experience this. And when I see this, I think, location, location, location. That's beautiful, that's perfect. And if I could build a house somewhere, I'd think that's a great spot, right? i could go swimming, a grand old time out on the lake. Let's step back a little bit. Uh, next slide. Or I think maybe like right here, like that is lush, it's beautiful. And that looks like a perfect place to build a house. But I don't know if you noticed in both of those pictures, There weren't homes there. See, in the region of Galilee, as they head into the winter months, which they're approaching, it is wet and cold, and it rains a ton, and it's stormy, and these waters rise. And because it goes up 1,400 feet in elevation, when it pours that water, it cascades into the valley. Flash floods. It'll wipe things out. I and mean, it makes for a really beautiful scene, right? In the spring when it's all green. You don't want to build a house beachside. You want to build a house where it looks beautiful. Let's take a step further. Thousands of steps further. Now, when I was in first service and showed this picture, I thought, man, that kind of looks like Temecula. A little bit brown and deathy. There's a spot on Duluth, you know, as you're going up Rancho Cal, right, that top of the world spot where you can look out over our valley, and it kind of looks like this. And this is a picture of the region of Galilee, probably more toward the summertime, maybe as it's heading into the fall, and you can see it's pretty brown. It's that same green lush landscape. It's there, and all the way back there, like that's the water. Notice what's here, though. It's really small. I wish we'd have given you better optics of this. But in this section, on these bedrocks high above, we have houses. This is really important, my friends. See, this is what's in the parable that's hard for us to see in the text. Because in the text, we think about what's plain, right? Hear what Jesus says and just do it, which is really, really important. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, I cited him earlier. He thought that the ethics espoused in the Sermon on the Mount were set so impossibly high. It's, the point for Jesus was to make it so impossible to do any of these things that you would just have to revel in the grace of God. And there's so much truth to that. that that's so good. And yet, and yet, Because of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to, it is very clear that he doesn't just speak hyperbolically the whole time so that people can't do these things. He doesn't just speak in real so people don't get it. He, He actually wants people to follow after him. Because this is the thing. If you look at that landscape, you see the difference is the foolish person didn't take that hard, long journey. Does that make sense? The foolish person builds in the valley soil or by the banks, that alluvial sand that you could construct something there and it looks great, but when those storms come, when it rains like it always does every year, that house, that structure will fall. So here's what Jesus is really getting to. The journey is an intentional discipleship is lifelong learning behind, with, and toward Christ. You remember in in my notes, I cited early on, it was bullet point number four, that Matthew is interested in lifelong discipleship, emphasis on the teaching, is what I put there in parentheses. What's interesting, though, is that when we think about discipleship as just teaching and taking in information and learning stuff, like discipleship programs, a lot of churches, you know, here, here's your discipleship process, right? You, you go to church, and then you, you get in a group, and then you do these things. It's the step of stuff that you need to learn to take in information. And it, it's understandable because the word disciple literally means learner. There was so much more going on in this region of Galilee in those pictures that I showed you because by the time Jesus had arrived, it had become the place where the most influential religious leaders, these wise sages, it's where they would go to teach and to share. And eventually they would become known as rabbis. They're the most influential people. They would teach in synagogues in these schools. Now, how many of you have little kids in elementary school? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, some of us here, right, we're like, <laughs> we're crying as we raise our hands. How many of you know people who have kids in elementary school? Yeah, see, those of you that raised your hand the second time, you're you're smiling. <laughs> like You're like, yeah, we know, and that's terrible. Because those of us that raised our hands in the first group, th- <laughs> this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I mean, what a wild time for our little ones to try and be learning. Now in the region of Galilee, when kids were about the age of six, they'd start going to synagogue school, little boys and little girls, right? It's called Beth Sefer. And these little six-year-olds would come into these classrooms, and the local rabbi, they would begin to teach and expose. And if you're in education, you've heard of the word pedagogy, right? It's the study of how people learn, how we should teach to let people get it, the unique ways that we're wired as individuals to learn, robust ways, and quite frankly, this is one of the worst ways to try and learn anything, is to have someone stand and talk at you. It's terrible. You're going to retain so little of what I say. And so the best of these rabbis, they'd take these little six-year-olds and they'd give them maybe these little wood pallets and take honey and drizzle them all over. These six-year-olds with their tactile hands start playing with that sticky stuff, and they're smelling it and putting it up to their nose and and licking it. And the rabbi would say out of Psalm 119, may his words be like honey on your mouth or honey on your lips. They're trying to reinforce at the youngest of ages that the word of God was everything their Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. And over the next several years, these six-year-olds, all the way up until like the age of 10 or so, they would daily take part in learning the first five books of their scriptures. The Torah, also known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they wouldn't just learn them. They... (sighs) Oh man, how far would I have to go to do this? You see this chunk of my Bible? There's a reason why it's not falling out, my friends. <laughs> there's a reason it's not falling out. And I've read this thing cover to cover multiple times, but there's a reason why it's not falling out. But you know what? Those little kids, by the time they were done with Beth Sepper, the brightest would have Almost all of this, if not all of it memorized. You guys, what in the world? Isn't that crazy? Memorized. Taken to heart. And at that juncture, the majority of them would stop their schooling But the best and the brightest of, at that point then, just the little boys. They would continue forward. And then they would be involved in their type of schooling called Beth Midrash. And at that point, those kids... We're supposed to be introduced to the rest of the Tanakh. The Nevi'im, so the writings of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And then the Ketuvim, the other writings like Ruth and Esther. And by the end of that schooling point, those teenagers would have the majority, if not all of that, memorized. Okay, is anyone else not impressed? You guys are like looking at me like, that's no big deal. Ah, oh, that's no big deal. Like I did that. <laughs> that is wild. That is insane. That is so, so insane. All of those kids that are made to that point, they were the best in their Bryce. They were the ones that were trying to get into that Ivy League school of becoming a Talmud, the Hebrew word for disciple. And as a Talmud, as a disciple, you would hopefully get selected. And so you would ask a rabbi, you would say, may I follow you? And the rabbi, the wise sage, would look at this teenage boy and start grilling this kid, asking all these questions, asking this kid to recite scripture, all these things. And maybe they'd give the child an opportunity to to follow behind them for a little bit. To do life with them. Because the goal of the rabbi was to find disciples who would want to become just like him. Disciples who would take his teaching called yoke. That thing, that big wooden thing that's put across oxen that trudges along ground. And that they would then have their own disciples and they would pass that on. So it's fascinating when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? He's actually talking about his teaching, his way of life and being and living and doing. Most of those teenage boys who asked a rabbi if they could become a disciple were eventually said, You know what? You've come really, really far. It's great that you have these words of life. But it's time for you to go and learn your family trade. Go be a carpenter. Go go work in the fields. Go fish. Most people weren't given the opportunity because they weren't the best and the brightest and the smartest. It was that 1% that got to potentially become a sage, potentially a rabbi. Now hear what is so ridiculous then in what we have in Scripture recorded in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus, by the Sea of Galilee in this region where the most influential teachers are having people become just like them and turning people away and rejecting people because they're not good enough or able enough to do that. And Jesus comes to some teenagers. you come. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus goes to Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John. Teenagers or maybe at most period, young adult, who definitely were not the best and the brightest, and were certainly doing what most of us have to do with life. It's just enjoy what we have and make it to the next day. Wake up, go to work, come home. Thank God for what you have and do it again, over and over. They would be relegated to life that was generationally living by that sea, doing the same thing. They were fishermen, it was their family business. And Jesus says, I choose you. You come follow me. You come follow me. You, 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 you. You, you, come, follow me. Wild. And I will make, you can't see it here, but the Greek here is puo. Jesus would initiate making and taking their daily ordinary life, their fishermen. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men to Matthew. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men to to, to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, no other people that he said to follow him. He, he went into their spaces and used their language. And so these fishermen, he takes their livelihood and their life and he transforms and he says, I will make you. And what's fascinating about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. That same word is used there. Because it's communicating something really, really important, something that we cannot forget. What we cannot forget is Jesus is always going to be the one who takes the initiative to say, come, follow me. And then you and I have a choice. You don't have a choice to start walking with him and traveling with him and living with him and looking to become like him. And what's scary for us, of course, is we think about the rains coming. We think about the house falling. We go, how many times is my house going to fall apart? How many times are things going to go into ruins? How many times? And yet when we remember that to build on his teaching, his foundation, to construct his house, is less about just the act of building but the act of traveling to going up. Up from the banks, up through the valleys, and up to the mountain to find yourself there with him, seeing where you've traveled. Doesn't it give you and I a greater sense that it's not just about us figuring it out and getting it done right away, right now, right? Just constructing that house real quick, just memorizing Matthew five through seven and making sure we just we just get that down perfectly this journey that we're on. So I have a question for you. If you could see the end, how would it affect today? We saw the end of this sermon. What about the end of your life? That sounds super dramatic, I know, but what about the last time you inhale and you exhale? wherever that's going to be, however it's going to be, with whomever, if any, are there. What would happen if if you could see that? Would it change anything about the journey that you're on? And who you're attempting to become? Would it change any of the smallest of decisions? I think it would give us a different level of intentionality. And I know I need that reminder all the time because, quite frankly, it's really easy for me to say like, okay, I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. But that's not the point. It's not about me just being all right. The the question is, am I traveling? Am I walking? Does it feel like a struggle? Because if it feels like a struggle, there's going to be stuff that I'm saying like, Lord, keep changing me. Keep transforming me. Keep refining me. This past Friday, I, I had the opportunity to go out to Yorba Linda, Orange County. You, you've heard before how, how fondly I reminisce on, on that place. I love uh, that area of Southern California, so I feel like that, that's where I cut my teeth. It was in the ministry at Friends Church in Yorba Linda. And, and one of my great friends and mentors, Jay Hewitt, and his wife, Nadley, they, they were huge for me and Mel. Natalie was my English professor, and she's the one who said, hey, honey, to Jay, there's this kid in my English class, and, like, I think you need to hire him. And so Jay and I started hanging out, and uh, I had one more year as an RA, so we waited a year, and then he brought me on the intern and then eventually take an associate position, and the goal was to go with him to, to be the worship pastor at, at Orange his church plan out there Uh, but I decided that instead I would come out here and so uh, Jay and I had a little friction at that time and yet we worked through that stuff and we kept this sound relationship because he's he's recognized I mean we have been so blessed in taking that leap of faith and risking it to come out here to, to Sunridge Community Church where we would get to be a part of helping people and we ourselves would find and follow Jesus and Jay, he has come, and he's spoken here from this stage. And I don't know if you remember his story, if you got the chance to hear him, but Jay was diagnosed not too long ago with a terminal brain cancer, a really rare cancer. And at that point in time, the prognosis that the doctors gave him was that there's no one in the world with this rare form who's lived beyond 10 years. And so he was given a 10-year timeline. I mean... What do you do when, even though you don't know it could happen before then, you could outlive that? But what do you do when someone says, "This is this is probably where that, that's going to end"? Jay decides that one of the things that he would want to do is he would he'd want to train for a triathlon and eventually do the Ironman triathlon. Wild stuff, right? <laughs> like. It's like 140 miles collectively of activity after activity. I think the first bit's like a 2.4-mile swim and then a 120 or so-mile bike ride and then uh, a marathon, 26-point-something miles. I can't even fathom doing any part of that. (laughs) Like, no part. It's terrible. And yet Jay decided that he would want to pour out his body to do this so that his little daughter, Hero, who is five years old, that she would see that with God, all things are possible and that she would have this memory of her father seeing this finish line and doing everything possible to make it there. And so this past Friday, we got to go and set up. We were there at one o'clock in the afternoon. Jay was in the middle of this stuff and Mal and I and, and friends were setting up this big finish line and He's a sponsored Ironman participant now, and so they're documenting this whole thing. He has a a crew that's following him because they want to have this documentary that Hero can watch when she's older. And so the very last bit of his race, because it's a virtual run, he's going to be ending, the finish line is right outside of his house. And little Hero is going to be there waiting for him with Natalie. And there were a group of 15 of us, uh, Jay's... Jay's closest, who were set up all on that last big stretch before the final turn. And and the image that I was supposed to have, and it it got a little wild, uh, was that we were supposed to run single file behind him six feet apart and that we were going to cross this finish line staggered behind him as he was embracing and holding Hero and, and spending time in that. And I'll tell you, it was something else to... Be at the end of that block, I was the very last runner, and see the police lights off in the distance in the dark and hear the crowd screaming and we had our phones out with the light and we were waving the light so he could see it through the dark and he'd hear us screaming and cheering and I remember screaming, let's go Jay, let's go I said, that's my boy and he's rounding the corner and we catch eyes and he. Gives me one of these. And then all these people that aren't supposed to run, start running behind him. And it's just this, this wild little image. But man, how powerful. See him cross that finish line. See, you could say that the point is for him to just finish, but you do realize that it was the act of stepping over and over and swimming and pedaling. Over and over and over, so that there would be a story to tell. The point isn't to be like, oh, I finished an Ironman. No, 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 no. There's a whole journey, there's something that is happening. And so, the question for you and I is if discipleship is lifelong learning to Christ, with Christ, for Christ, toward Christ, to become like Him, who are you and who are we becoming? And how is that happening? Who are we becoming? Are you and I choosing to go and build up in the hills? Or are we going to settle for the easy and just tell each other it looks pretty good down here and the weather's really nice? For now. Who are you and I becoming? And I can't answer that for you. And I know there are are things for me. But I would hope and pray that each and every single one of us knows that He has invited you and you can choose to follow in His steps. Part of what we recognize has been so hard in this time is that we've been separate. And so last week, Bob Saney, our executive pastor of operations, pulled together some of our team to talk about how next Tuesday we might go back into the purple tier. It's hard to keep up with the colors, but the purple tier means that we wouldn't be allowed back in our building. We could choose to do a number of things, but we've been as consistent as possible. And so we decided instead of waffling back and forth, beginning next Sunday, and this, please hear this, beginning next Sunday, we're going back to what we tried a couple weeks ago, and we're going to do that indefinitely. We're going to do one big service, one big service every Sunday at 10.30 It's going to start cooling down. We're going to start investing some resources into that to hopefully weatherproofing some of our our system, to, to finding shade for us, to shield us from the sun and the other elements. And our hope is that in us choosing to work hard to do that, our church family we would remember that the reason why we gather isn't so that we can say, no one can stop us. No, 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 no. It's not to puff our chest toward anyone. The reason why we gather, right? Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not neglect meeting together as some as in the habit are doing Rather, encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, there's this direction, right? Sorry, the author of Hebrews uses that racing image. There's something that we're moving toward, and we will not make it there. We won't. We won't make it there unless we encourage one another. You see, the goal of a disciple isn't to say, hey, you be my disciple. That's why I'm not for discipleship and me saying I disciple anyone. I don't disciple anybody. I don't disciple anybody because that would imply that I'm trying to make them like me and I do not want people to be like me. Trust me. I am a disciple and we are disciples together and we are walking and journeying and struggling and running. We are trying to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because he started it. He's going to finish it, but he's not going to just let us Do whatever we want. He's calling us toward him, and we can choose then. How are we going to do that? So let's be that church family. Let's be together. Let's encourage each other. Let's inspire one another. And let's get out of ourselves and recognize that if Jesus has called us, if he says, you come, follow me, there's a whole valley here. There's a whole valley here that could metaphorically settle for living living in this valley for not taking the hard route, for not going up, and you and I have the opportunity to say, I don't have the answers. I don't have the perfect way. I'm not a perfect person, but Jesus, he's changing me. He can change you. So here's your last question. What words of Jesus are and will be a daily invitation to choose differently, a different way, here. And now, I'm going to invite the team up. The reason why I pose that question is because I'm convinced that for every single one of us over the next several weeks, as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, we have a choice. We have a choice to hear as Jesus is calling us, to hear as he's inviting us, or to say, Oh, like I'm good right here. So listen carefully and attune yourself to words and invitations that go against what you're inclined to do and are difficult because when you, at the very least, let those words enter into you, you're heading in this direction. Can we do that, church family? Can we do that? Can we commit to not just coming so that someone can talk at us, right? Right? Because that's not the way that we're supposed to learn. Britt and I and Danny and Lisa and whomever comes across it, whoever has been here before as we speak, we that's not, it's so much more. Can we come together and encourage one another to listen to his words so that we can go up that mountain and build put our life on him. Let's pray.